Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Why Not Both. My name is Pam Schaefer, and I'm a musician, therapist, and tutor living in Los Angeles. I started this podcast to explore how our multiple passions inform our identity. We're often told that we're supposed to have one passion in life and that we're supposed to define ourselves by this one passion. However, most of us actually have multiple interests and have worked at a lot of different jobs, and I was really curious how this actually changed people's ideas of their own identity in the world. I decided to interview people from many different fields to determine how their multiple passions inform their identity. You can learn more about all of the people that I have interviewed on my website, which is wnbpodcast.com. So we are joined today by Lucian Khan, and I would love for him to introduce himself to you. Hi, um, I'm Lucian Khan. I am a game designer. Um, I am uh, best known for a game called Dead Friend, a game of necromancy. I am currently working on a game called Visigoths versus Molgoths. Um, and if you want to follow me on Twitter after this, find me at Otheogony. It's O-H underscore T-H-E-O-G-O-N-Y. And you're about to learn a whole lot more about me now. And it's going to be awesome. And at the end of this podcast, I, I will link to everything that is Lucian. And so that way you can check out everything that he's doing as I do with all my guests, which is awesome because all of you do so many amazing things that it blows my mind, which is why I wanted to talk to you. So the first question that I ask everyone is, what do you do? And I follow that up with, is there a better question to ask as opposed to what do you do? Is there a question you would prefer to be asked? I actually really like the question, what do you do right now? Um, I haven't always liked that question, and I think it can be a very fraught question, but um, right now I'm, I'm, um, I'm doing a lot of tabletop game design, um, which is awesome and weird, um, and um, I, I really love it. Um, so, That's fantastic. Yeah, I feel, I feel great about that. So... Why did you think it was fraught before? Like what made it a question that you like now, but that you did not like before? So I've had a very um, labyrinthine uh, career trajectory. Um, I uh, have been a um, religion graduate student. I have been a, I've worked in um, theater production, publishing, um, teaching English as a second language. Um, I've worked in a bookstore. I have worked in, um, uh, tech as a programmer. I, I've just kind of like meandered, uh, in a, in a bizarre and inconsistent way through my, um, sort of different, um, jobs and gigs and artistic things. Um, oh yeah. And, and I, I was also, um, in a, in a, in a klezmer punk comedy band called Schmeckle. <laughs> that's, that's my favorite step on your journey. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like there have been a lot of times where I've worked um, sort of bland um, and like uninspiring jobs. Um, and I've really hated when people ask me, what do you do? Cause I, I felt like, um, my answer was not really reflecting anything about my personality. Uh, 
but right now I'm actually, I really love what I'm doing. So that's interesting. Cause when you were talking, I was thinking about how it reflects on your personality and several of my other guests and I have discussed that it's interesting that we define ourselves by what we do, but sometimes that's also tied up in how we make money. And sometimes those things are actually very different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now I, I make money in a variety of ways. Um, I do some adjuncting um, and I do some freelance writing and I, I do like a whole, I, I've cobbled together a bunch of different things. Um, but I answer the question about what I do with the thing I actually really love. Got it. So it sounds like for you then, if you're answering what do you do, it's kind of the thing that you are currently engaged in that you're most passionate about. Exactly. Got um, it. But I've definitely felt like, you know, there have been times when, um, for example, like I used to be like for a living, I was teaching English as a second language um, to adults, which I actually enjoyed. Um, but I was focusing most of my like uh, creative and emotional energy on writing these weird um, comedy songs for for Schmeckel. Um, right. And when people asked me what I did, I usually said oh, I'm an ESL teacher, even though like half of my life was this other thing. Cause I do think that we're sort of trained to um, answer that question with what we do to pay the rent. Yeah. Like that's, what's so interesting to me is that oftentimes we're told that we're not one thing. Like I had been talking to another guest that is also a musician and a therapist and I had internalized the narrative that I wasn't a musician because I was a therapist, but simultaneously I wasn't a therapist because I was a musician. Yeah, and so totally. I was like, cool, where, do, where does that leave me? I'm just like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, you're just a nebulous being with, with, with no uh, vocation. Yeah, I'm a manic pixie dream girl. Goodbye. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've come to make your life fanciful and then run away and be a trope. Um... Yeah, and it's interesting that you had, in a way, I guess, done that with Schmeckel and then with ESL teaching, because I remember being really excited about reading about all the Schmeckel stuff, because you were written up in a lot of stuff, and you ended up participating in a lot of cool events. Yeah, we got weirdly famous. Like, we were actually in the New York Times. Like, we were in sort of like one of the back pages of the music section, um, but we were in the New York Times. I'm actually in the New York Times in a bear Boy Scout costume. <laughs> <laughs> um oh, which I is so much. I have an I have an uncle who I barely know who still has this on his fridge. Oh, um, oh. Yeah, but like yeah, we were in um The Advocate, we were in um <laughs> The Jewish Daily Forward three times. <laughs> um I don't know what to do with this, but we're really excited about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and so, like, we got, you know, we did, like, a bunch of college shows. We did, like, some music festivals. Like, we were sort of obscure famous to the point where, like, one time I was at the meatball shop um, on 88 Stanton in the East Village. Um, sorry, in the Lower East Side in New York. And, um, like, the... the um, the like person who was working at um, the front desk. I can't think of that word right now. What what do you call the person who works in a restaurant when you go into the restaurant and the, the hostess? There we go. Um, at first I was like, I was having a serious moment because I was like, wait, yeah. 
I don't know what happens at meatball places because I don't eat yeah. meat. And I was like, wait, what if something different happens at meatball places? No, I just can't. I just don't know the word hostess. <laughs> anyway, the hostess was like, oh, my God, are you that guy from Schmeckle? And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I was so like nobody people. ever like it's pretty obscure but she recognized me and she actually like let me and my boyfriend cut like an hour-long line and gave us a table um which is bonkers and like the only time any like wild celebrity thing has happened to me um so I was like obscure obscure famous in that way like a minute I love it how do you feel like that's like informed kind of the other things you've done? Because it's interesting that you touched on like, well, I described myself as an ESL teacher, even though you were getting getting written up in like these places and, you know, dodging meatball lines. Yeah, totally. I, I And I feel like it is this weird thing that I was like brought up to to tell people that what I do is um, is like the thing that is the most um, lucrative. Not to say that ESL teaching was particularly lucrative, but it was <laughs> it was like slightly more lucrative than being in an obscure klezmer punk comedy band. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there are no lies detected there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, aside from convenience, I'm really curious about why we default to that narrative. Like, do you think that it's something particularly about American culture, or do you think it's something that we do to shorthand when socializing with people? I don't know what happens in other countries with this. Like, I don't know, like, if I went to some place that was, like, more like a, like, like, I don't know, one of the, like, Scandinavian social democracies or something. Like, I don't know if people in Finland, like, tell people about their obscure band or tell people about, like, their boring day job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't have enough information. But, like, I do think that, um, I think that, like, probably a lot of it is that imposter syndrome that you're talking about. Like, this feeling that if you aren't able to, like, pay your bills with your art practice, that you're, like, not a real artist, which is ridiculous right. because, like, our entire our entire economic and social system is completely broken and nobody really is able to do that. Right, it's like, who's able to support themselves even with things they're not passionate about? Right, exactly. Like, like it's, it, it's a weird um, metric that has no relationship to the actual material conditions that anyone is living under. Right, right. So I'm just like, okay, that doesn't seem to make sense. And I'm also curious about what you think of, you know, are there any benefits to the narrative of, oh, you have one true passion? Because as someone personally who does not have one true passion, I have like several true passions, or I guess just several passions. I don't know about their veracity. But is there value, do you think, for anybody? Are there any positives to having that narrative of like, yes, there's the one thing you do, go follow that thing? Like, I feel like there is if you're actually that kind of person. Like, I I mean, I have, um, you know, I have some friends who are artists who are not multimedia artists who really have, like, one medium that really, really calls to them and that they've perfected. And, like, that's awesome. Like, if, if you're that kind of person, um, you know, that kind of focus, I'm sure, is, is great. Um, I don't happen to be that kind of person either. Like, I um, tend to jump around um to different media like i've done music 
I'm currently very engrossed in tabletop game design. Um, I've done um, other kinds of writing. Um, so I, you know, I've done other kinds of performance. So I, I feel like um, it just kind of depends on what sort of artist you are, like whether you're the sort of person who um, really focuses on one area or if you're the sort of person who's like kind of going around to, to different um, media. Right. And it also sounds like I'm curious about the overlap from some of your more, I guess, traditional jobs. Like you said that you were in a master's program for religion. You did ESL teaching. Do those overlap at all with the artistic portions of your life? Well, some of them, some sometimes, yeah. So um, definitely, so the masters in in religion um, definitely informed um, a lot of the like more obscure lyrics to the Schmeckel songs because it was <laughs> like the band was all about being um, being trans and being Jewish, and it was all like obscure comedy. So that there are some like elements of um, of religious study that sort of seeped into the into the lyrics, and also um, with my game design work, um, definitely a lot of the stuff that I did about ritual. Um, mm. comes in like I have um, my game dead friend is like you have like a magic circle and tarot cards and like you're doing this whole like necromancy ritual and raising your friend from the dead and like it comes with a grimoire and the book sort of like like is a little bit inspired by the Passover Seder um, <laughs> so like definitely like some of that stuff um, seeps into my artwork and then on the other side like I um I did work as a um, as a computer programmer for about two years, um, and um, the company that uh, I was working for did um, agile development. So, mm -hmm. um, like, had to learn like the agile process and learn about like like um, sprints and like iterations and like a, a certain sort of style of um, project management and like frequent releases and um, like building test code and all of that kind mm. of thing. And I feel like um, a lot of those um, techniques have informed um, the way that I do my game design, even though I'm not oh. designing games. Like I, I do sort of like like I make a minimum viable product, like I make a, mm -hmm. a core game, like the least playable, like the least complex playable thing. And then I iterate through like many series of play tests and like constantly oh, edit. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, because I remember like, obviously the listeners don't remember this, so I'll fill them in. But I remember when you first started developing games, you did send out play test versions. And it sounds like you were trying to see almost how people would play the game and perhaps break the game so that you know what yeah. to do for the next round. Exactly. And I'm doing that constantly. Like I'm always like arranging um, sessions of my games and like running them for people and like getting feedback and like sending out early copies and having people run them without me and tell me how it went and like send me recordings and whatever. So I definitely feel like that process has been um, like, I don't think I would be, doing it this way necessarily if I hadn't done agile software development. Got it. Got it. Yeah. It seems like almost like the creativity was informed by the religion and things like that. And then the actual structure of it was more influenced by the coding that you did. 
Yeah, sort of. Um, and like, I don't know if I have no idea if like, well, definitely like when I was um, when I was an ESL teacher, I did start making like little games for my students. Like I'd make um, grammar games and vocabulary games and stuff like that. So I think I sort of um, started experimenting with game design in the classroom as Got well. Got it. Got it. Do you like that they overlap? Like, or do you prefer keeping some of those spheres separate? Like the fact that you do do adjunct and other writing, do you like to keep those skills separate or do you like to integrate them into your creative work? Um, it's an interesting question. I don't know if I, like, I think the way my brain works is very um, sort of interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't know if I'm even capable of keeping any of my areas of... <laughs> work separate right like they all sort of leak into each other right yeah like I don't know what it would be like to not do that so <laughs> right and I was wondering I was like so it sounds like then you'd have a really fluid definition of yourself if all of those pieces do start it's almost like the way you're describing it you keep adding layers and layers and each layer is contributing to the next but it sounds yeah. like you're just shifting your definition of self yeah I mean I sort of um like, I I sort of keep my, like, core understanding of myself, like, pretty brief. Like, I sort of think of myself as, like, a funny, creative person, right? Um, okay. And then, like, sort of that can encompass whatever comes around. Like, I don't feel the need to have, like, a really, um, I guess because I've done so many different things and because... Um, in some ways I have a short attention span and like jump around a lot. Um, I feel comfortable just sort of like understanding myself as like a, a funny, weird, creative person. And then like what it is that I'm doing at any given time is just what I'm doing at any given time. Got it. I think that that's a really fascinating definition of self because so many people do get trapped in kind of the nitty gritty of okay, well, I do X, Y, Z, therefore I'm a funny, creative person, as opposed to I'm a funny, creative person, therefore I can do like X, Y, Z, and maybe Q and aardvarks. Yeah, And totally. so it's like, <laughs> it's, it's interesting to hear someone go the other direction. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a goofball. I've always been creative, um, like, since I was a little kid. Um, I grew up with, like, my grandpa teaching me how to make like comedy, like fake comedy radio shows, like that we would record on a tape deck. Oh, <laughs> please tell me you still have those. They're somewhere. My mom has them in a drawer somewhere. I haven't. Oh my them. God. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. They're pretty, they're like completely incomprehensible, but, um, but you know, I, I sort of was, you know, raised by people who collected joke books, um, <laughs> This like, explains so much. <laughs> yeah, I like watched the Golden Girls. So um all of that is is pretty basic to to who I am and isn't really like it's not like one day I decided like, oh, I'm gonna like do creative things or like learn how to be funny. Like I that was just kind of how I how my life developed. You're like, that's just that's just how things panned out. And that's actually, I mean, yet again, uh to like fill the listeners in I actually think I have a cassette tape of you from sometime in middle school oh my God. that I was passing around <laughs> a cassette recorder and everyone was just goofing off on it and you definitely were like a, a pro at goofing off 
that sounds <laughs> that sounds true. <laughs> I was like, yeah, there's there's footage. It exists. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in in middle school, I was also just listening to so much Frank Zappa. That's like all I I listened to for years. <laughs> Um, which certainly like kept pushing me in that direction. Yes. Yeah. How do you think you would advise people who do form their identities from kind of like broader characteristics outward to actions as opposed to the other way around? Like, did you have any role models that did that? Or was that just sort of a, you figured it out as you went along? Um, I think I figured it out as I went along. I mean, I would say like, um, I don't know. I feel like I am such a, um, I'm such a, like, strange data point in, like, the graph of humans, right? Like, <laughs> I, I feel like I, I, I don't know if I have any, any universal advice. <laughs> you did accidentally spark, like, a class boycott in eighth grade. I mean, that was impressive. Yeah, I mean, I just kind of, I'm, like, I'm just like a pretty um, like weird contrary person by nature. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. Like I have, I like, I feel like, you know, if I try to give advice about like, how do you become like carefree about like what your identity is or whatever, like I'm going to end up giving terrible advice like that part <laughs> in the, the end of the end, you know, the part in um, Tommy at the end where ever, where he's like, everybody should blindfold themselves and play pinball to gain enlightenment. And it's just like a failure and they kill him. <laughs> I've never seen it, but now I'm like, well, it's not. Enough yeah. Now, you know, it's just like a bad, it's a bad move. Like if you, if you find some like, um, some like happiness or satisfaction in life in like an idiosyncratic way, like trying to like package it and duplicate it seems to be doomed to failure. Right, right. I mean, it seems like I'm trying to think of any applicable advice for anyone listening, because I'm sure there must be another person who had an experience like yours where they went from general characteristics towards then what their outward product was, because that is kind of what the whole podcast is about. Like, yeah, I thought of the name, like, why not both? Because we, uh, there is a common narrative of, oh, you do the one thing you're passionate about, and then that's it. Or if you don't have a passion, you do your day job, and you might have a hobby that you never tell anyone about. Uh, well, but I found, I found that that wasn't the case the more I talked to people. So I'm like, there's got to be more people that have had that experience. I mean, maybe, like, one thing I could say is, like, you could try, like, if you don't know what you want to do, you could try hyper fixating on what you're doing when you think you're wasting time. Um, because like I have spent unbelievable amounts of time in my life playing video games or playing tabletop role playing games right, or like right. doing, doing these things. And like, you know, even like when I was in grad school and I was supposed to be like, studying religion and blah 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 and like reading all these heavy tomes like mm -hmm. the what i would do to escape from it is like obsessively replay final fantasy 6 um yep. <laughs> so, so like i mean ultimately doing all of those like wasting enormous amounts of time on doing all of that right gave me a really good understanding of game mechanics um right. and like now I'm using all of that as if I like it's as if I've been like doing a deep 
study of games for like my entire life because I have my mistake because I was procrastinating. (laughs) (laughs) So like you can always try finding out like, well, is there anything like, like creative or interesting or, or marketable or like whatever about what I do when I'm wasting time. Um, because right. that's what, that's what you're drawn to, right? That's what you're drawn to and you're not trying to be drawn to it. Well, that sounds like in a way you used what you used to procrastinate, like to soothe yourself. You actually use it to like communicate with other people and to make something that connects you to other people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like, you know, it's really nice now, you know, I'm 36 years old. It's nice now feeling like those like eons that I spent playing games have not been wasted, um, <laughs> which isn't to say that it's a waste of time to have fun, but it's still like, there's something very edifying about being like, oh, it all turned out to be like, actually like research for my art. <laughs> right. And it all turned out to be I mean, I don't know if you have this experience, but another guest on my show was talking about that they felt that the, quote, work that was actually more important to them was the work that gave them a sense of purpose that connected them to others, whether that was actually paid work, whether it was not paid work. It was work that they felt was, like, fulfilling on a deeper level. And it sounds like creating games might be that thing for you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it's, it's really, really fun, like, having strangers come to me and be like oh I played your game and like here's the ghost story that my friend and I told and like here's what happened like that's really interesting that must be so fascinating because it's like you put out this little sandbox into the world and then people are like I built a castle another person's like I tunneled to China and another person's like I lost my shoe yeah yeah it is super interesting um and yeah I mean I I don't know what else to say about that it is it's really great it's funny because I was going to ask you, oh, how did you end up at game design? And you totally answered that question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, I arrived at it by avoiding other stuff. Yeah. Which is, that's actually great advice because looking at what you do that's either for fun or what you do where you feel like you're most yourself. Yeah. And then seeing how that connects to either yourself and then how it connects to other people is, I mean, I guess that is what guided me as well, because I was like, well, what do I like to do? And I'm like, I like to make up songs and I like to help people. And like, that's really been my guiding principle of the things that I do with my time. And it's like, yeah, it's like, I would avoid doing other things by talking to my friends about their problems. And now my job is talking to people about their problems. So I'm like, this is genius. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) But like, you know, by the same token, like I am sure that like, throughout the course of my life, I will do many, many boring things for money, right? Like it's, you know, it's like inevitable in our, in our broken, terrible society. Like I will, I will continue to do some really boring ass shit to pay my rent sooner or later. Um, So like, I guess sort of just having that balance, right? Being like, okay, so like, Sometimes I will have to do like meaningless, soulless, like completely, you know, automaton like grim tasks. Um, And other times I will be doing something like fulfilling and interesting and cool. Um, Like I better, I better like uh, keep my understanding of myself close to the cool stuff and like try to try to understand that like, you know, life isn't perfect and like, 
sometimes you just have to do boring shit you know there's like the right there's like the part of your there's the part of your like work or whatever that's like building something awesome and there's the part of your work that's like the equivalent of like scrubbing a terribly dirty saucepan for hours (laughs) (laughs) and i like what you said that you're like you can't let that necessarily disturb your concept of self that like you don't have to be defined by just the boring bits right exactly like i don't know anybody who's like you know when somebody's like oh what do you do and they're like I do dishes all the fucking time, right? Even though we all do, <laughs> right? So if you don't, if you don't make that your sense of self, you don't have to make your boring ass job your sense of self either. That's that's gonna be that's the soundbite from this one. I'm like, that's genius. You just encapsulated it. Thank you. You're welcome. Because <laughs> yeah, it sounds like then one of the questions I had asked someone else was about you know do you define yourself by what you put your time and effort into? And it sounds like almost with you, it's not even so much time because sometimes you spend time on things that like you said, are, are the dishes. Yeah. Um, But even when you're doing something like the dishes, it does sound like mentally you can be investing your energy elsewhere because when you are doing something menial for money, you don't necessarily have to invest your brain in that. It's not like all of a sudden you're like, well, I guess I can't think about any of my other projects now. Yeah. Actually, um, it's interesting that you said that. Like, I remember um, the first full-time job I ever had was um, working in the back room of a bookstore and doing, like, receiving. And it was, you know, it was pretty boring. It was, like, putting labels on books, like, shelving, you know, that kind of shit. And um, I remember the entire time I was working there, I worked there for, like, a year, um, I always had this tiny notepad next to where I was working, where I was like simultaneously working and then like jotting down like plot ideas for this terrible fantasy novel I was writing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that I'm like, do we get an unreleased works of Lucian Khan at some no, point? No, <laughs> it's very bad. It's not good. It's like a really bad fantasy novel I wrote when I was 19. Um, But I'm not sorry I did it. I'm not sorry I wrote it. (laughs) Well, because that's, I think that's another thing that's important for people to hear, especially, you know, knowing that people now are playing your game and are like, wow, Lucian's really cool, um, is that knowing that some of the things you make on the way to making cool things are are really not cool. Oh, yeah. That's like, I don't remember who first said it because it's advice that I took to heart, but it, it is really true that in order to make good art, you must first make a lot of bad art. Um, mm-hmm. I, I fully agree. And just like, you just have to keep making stuff and like, you don't have to release all of it, right? Like you don't have right, to publish. Right. Yeah. Um, just keep making making stuff until something's good. Right, right. And, and what do you... I'm curious, what's your litmus test for when, when you know that you've made something good? Um, a really good question. Um, I think I do, um, although I'm sure it is possible to make something good and nobody likes it, nobody understands it. Like surely that happens for Mm -hmm. me. Like I do, um, take audience reactions into account like gotcha. I, I will like I will send around what I've been working on to like five or six people 
and like gauge how they're reacting to it. Um, and like, I'm certainly not saying that the best work is the most popular because it's not true. Um, but if I've made some something and it's like not meaning anything to anyone, I'm going to try right. right? So like, yeah, I, yeah. I sort of look for like, is any, like, does anybody care? <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like kind of what I was thinking before from what you said of like, did I effectively communicate with someone? Did yeah. I connect with them on some level? Yeah. Because you're right. Something could be technically good or structurally good. Yeah. But if it doesn't connect with someone, it's sort of like when you tweet and no one says anything and you're like, did yeah. no one see it? Exactly. I'm like, it's like, whatever, like, I made this thing, but nobody cares. Um, and you're like, on one level, it's great that you care about it. Like, it does yeah. satisfy that. But especially if you're creating, like, a communicative medium, which is, I, I'm trying to think of any art medium that's non-communicative. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, none are springing to mind. Um, so I might, that might just be the definition. It's fine. Um, but like, it's like if it doesn't speak to someone or it doesn't connect to someone, it's like, well, then maybe that's like an inside thought. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like, it doesn't mean I'm sorry I made it, right? Like, I have written a lot of stuff that like I've sent out to people and like everyone was kind of like, eh. And, you know, I've sent out, you know, I've like sent things out to publishers and they've been like, meh, you know, um, and I've even sent things out to publishers and they've been like, this is actually like very like well-crafted, but we're going to pass on it. Right? right. And like, and right. like, you know, it's like, well, okay. Um, maybe this isn't the one that I'm going to like, you know, put out to the world, even if there's nothing, if, if it's fine. Right. There's nothing wrong with it. But like, in fact, nobody cares. <laughs> no one needs this. And also, it doesn't preclude you from, like, either trying different versions of that thing or right. trying again. Like, exactly. I, yeah. 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 Like, I, you know, or, you know, I don't have to, like, burn the manuscript. <laughs> right? I have it, right? It's just nobody cares. <laughs> really funny. Like, one person rejects you. You're like, fine, everything. Burn it to the yeah, ground. Yeah, torch it. <laughs> yeah. yeah I think that that's definitely good for people to hear especially people who are doing like for instance say like the boring dishes day job and then also have something that they feel like actually is more aligned with their identity is like yeah do the thing you're doing and if no one's really listening yet just like keep doing it but maybe change it up like exactly exactly like and the other thing is that I found that um like if there's some message that I'm trying to get across or like something I'm trying to say and I do it in one medium and nobody cares, sometimes taking the same core idea and doing it in a different medium, suddenly people care. Um, so it, sometimes it's like just the wrong, it's like the wrong approach. What's like an example of a message that you've tried to tell through one medium and people have been like, and then you tell it through another and they're like, yeah. Okay, so I... Um, my, I have like a lot of really interesting family history. Um, my great, great grandmother um, was a bootlegger during prohibition. Amazing. Um, yeah. So she like lived in the Bronx and like made closet alcohol. And like, I have all these really interesting stories um, from my grandmother and my great aunt 
um, about like all the stuff that happened in this apartment. And I've tried writing it, like I tried writing a memoir and um, like I sent it out to a whole lot of publishers and like sent it out to a lot of people, nobody cared. Okay, so I made a game called Grandma's Drinking Song. Amazing. Grandma's Drinking Song. <laughs> about my family's alcohol making illegal activities in like 1930 in the Bronx. Um, and in the game, you um, you end up composing a drinking song together. You like play, the, there's an onion involved, like a literal onion that gets passed around. Um, it's like a very like joyous, weird, silly game. Um, and people love it. Like it, right. it was like super great. Like I brought it to games conventions. Everyone who played it loved the game. Um, and then I got it published in a, um, a games magazine called Codex. Oh so like I, I ended up, um, you know, just instead of writing it as like a straight up memoir, I was like, okay, I'll just make a game out of it. And that ended up better. Like people responded better to that. That's so fabulous. And do you get to like, do people ever record the songs from that for you? They have. Yes. Um, <gasps> and, and they're, they're ridiculous and great. <laughs> Are you allowed to release them? Like, would you ever release like uh, the songs of Grandma's drinking songs? I don't think I would. I don't think I would torture my players with. Um, <laughs> with <that. laughs> I don't. I don't want them to get self conscious. Oh, I was gonna say it's like the weirdest wormhole of SoundCloud rappers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like little bootlegger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, um, you wouldn't be able to be buried in the cemetery. No, no, it's true. I mean, I've I've done enough things that I probably can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. <laughs> oh my gosh. So what would you say are like your favorite things that you've kind of learned along this journey of doing a million and twelve things? Um Oh wow, I don't even know how to answer this. <laughs> I don't I, I don't know. This one's hard. Um you don't have to know what you want to do when you grow up. Like you just don't like, like, I think that a lot of, um, a lot of kids and teenagers, especially like if you're ever identified at any point as gifted, uh, <laughs> you're like sort of programmed with this sense that like, you're supposed to have like a vision of what you want to do with your life. And like this whole like sense of like knowing what you're, whatever what your passion is blah 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 right, right, right. Um, which I think is actually complete and utter bullshit like except for like this tiny percentage of people who just like know this kind of thing about themselves right like I right. think that I think that most people um like figure out what is interesting to them by trying different things and like discarding the ones that suck right so like and like the nice thing about you know doing that through having a bunch of different jobs is that you get paid in the meantime, right? <laughs> <laughs> so like- Well, and also you can try out different combo maneuvers of being like, do these things work together? Okay, yeah. no, I'll swap out one of them because one of them I like, but I don't like the other one. Yeah. And I like what you said that you can discard them. I think it's important that people can know that you can let go of things that aren't working out for you. Yeah, like my advice, like if I were gonna 
hang out with like a 17 year old and be like, let me tell you like some advice for the future. Don't go to grad school unless you absolutely have to, right? right. Just like, like figure out some other way of like getting jobs and just do a bunch of jobs of different kinds that you can like finagle your way into until you figure out what kinds of jobs you like doing. You know, as someone who actually, when tutoring, does spend time with 16 and 17-year-olds, that is solid advice because I do think that, and I don't know if this happens in cultures other than American culture, because much like you, I, I only have experience really talking to adults in other cultures. Uh, I don't tutor teenagers really from other cultures. But there's this idea where it's like, you have to go to the right college and then you have to get the right grad degree and you have to do all these like supposed steps but it's to get yeah. to an end goal that you're not even really clear on or that might in fact change because you don't know because you're not even close to it yet and you can't conceptualize yeah. it because like your prefrontal cortex isn't developed yet so yeah. it's like it's yeah it's super bizarre i really think that like you know working working and working a bunch of different entry-level jobs great like shadowing somebody who is like, you know, in an area you're interested in, great. Like try, like, I really think we need to bring back apprenticeships, right? Where it's like, yeah. you know, like I, I, I just feel like people are forced to um, sort of artificially box themselves into one, um, to one path, like, and then like dump a, ton of money into it that like you don't have to necessarily right and then you might feel guilty for instance if that path ends up not really being for you then you've already invested so many resources in it that you're like well yeah. do I really want to leave this path totally I mean go to grad school if they give you a free ride like do it right <laughs> you know like I got I got a lot of funding for grad school so like I don't have a lot of regrets there other than that I had a miserable two years um right. but like right. but like if you know the whole thing changes is if like if somebody's like oh hey we're gonna like give you a full ride to get this weird master's degree if you're interested in it do it right but don't like don't dump a bunch of money into like what seems to be the end all and be all like it's probably not right you're probably actually going to change right I, I like that as a quote to you're probably actually going to change is I think something that people even who aren't teenagers need to hear because I think sometimes people don't give themselves permission to change. Yeah, totally. And so I think it's important to hear from someone like you who has led this kind of like, I, don't, I was about to say multiplicitous, then I was like, nope, wrong word. And I was like, multifaceted? I, <laughs> like, I, I definitely think of my life as like a picaresque novel <laughs> yeah you're like a multiverse but you're a person <laughs> yeah um i'm a i'm a big classics nerd and i i definitely identify strongly with um with the character in um the golden ass who's this like guy who tr <laughs> tries to steal a magic scroll from a witch and accidentally turns himself into a donkey and then like wanders around for 12 chapters yes uh, I like wow he's still a donkey yeah 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 um and and like just has a lot of misadventures like i i i'm a little bit of that sort of like like meddlesome bumbling through life person <laughs> 
Wow, I hadn't thought of Apuleius in a really long time. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. Be back. <laughs> well, I think that that's actually a really great note to end on of having faith in yourself that you can change. And just kind of, it sounds like you've just followed your main tenets of being funny and creative and have landed at really beautiful places. And, oh yeah, I want you to describe your games. That's an even better note to end on, like what your current games are so that people can go and play them. Yeah, um, so the ones that are currently available um, are Dead Friend, a game of necromancy. Um, It is a game that uses tarot cards and a grimoire. It is a two-player game. You are playing either the living or the dead, meaning that you are either a magician doing a ritual of necromancy or you are a ghost being evoked back from beyond the grave. Um, And uh, it's a storytelling game. It usually lasts uh, somewhere between two and four hours. Um, That one is available on drivethroughrpg.com. Um, just look for Dead Friend, a game of necromancy. Um, so that one is out. Um, you can find Grandma's Drinking Song in um, Codex Issue Joy 2. Um, Amazing. Which is also on uh, Drive Through RPG. That's a four player game, um, another storyteller game that is also involves singing and an onion. Um, <laughs> and it's all about my um, great great grandmother uh, and her bootlegging hijinks. Um, I also have a very short game, a 200 word game um, that you can find online for free that is called Same Bat Time, Same Bat Mitzvah. <laughs> Um, in this game, you, um, it's a, a, about a bat mitzvah party where one of the guests has, um, been bitten by a vampire bat before, um, coming to the reception and all hell breaks loose. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> for 13 players, of course. Um, and anything else. exactly. Um, the two big things that I'm working on right now, um, my big game, Visigoths versus Malgoths, um, will probably be kickstarting in October of 2019, is my guess. Hey. Um, I'm aiming for um, an October 1st Kickstarter. Um, so keep your eye out for that. Follow me on Twitter to keep updated on that. Um, Visigoths versus Malgoths is. Um, a tabletop role-playing game about the conflicts and romances among the warriors who conquered ancient Rome and modern spooky teens set in a (laughs) shopping mall in a Los Angeles suburb in 1996. And of course, it has a lot of bisexuals. Um, Yes, because duh. Duh. So that um, that's it's a really, really fun game. I've been playtesting it for about a year. Um, You, you know, get to be basically time-traveling ancient Visigoths or 1996-era Malgoths. Um, It involves uh, embarrassing traits. Um, All of the combat (laughs) results in hurt feelings. Um, um, It comes with an entire mall with like 23 clerks and 17 stores. Most of the names of the stores are puns. Um, It's it's really fun. Um, So that one will be coming up uh, later this year. And I am also working on, um, I am one of the editors along with uh, Sharang Biswas of um, a book that was is tentatively titled Erotic Art Games, 
Um, it is being funded by the um, Effing Foundation for Sex Positivity um, hey. and, is, and is being published by Pelgrane Press um, sometime in 2020. Um, and that is going to be an anthology of probably eight games, um, tabletop and live action role playing games centered around topics of sex and sexuality. Um, so I am hard at work with my good friend Sharang uh, on uh, putting together that anthology. Wow, that is wow. That's quite the litany, and I appreciate all of that. And we'll probably Thank also put it at the beginning of the podcast. Excellent. You can <laughs> paste that, put it out at the beginning. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's amazing. Well, yeah. Lucian, thank you again. I really appreciate that you took me up on my idea of being like, hey, want to be on my podcast? Yeah, thank you for having <laughs> me on your podcast. Um, and good luck with your podcast. <laughs> in other news. <laughs> in, other, in other news, good luck with your podcast. Yes. Um, and as always, as always, thank you for your horse brutality. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Why Not Both. You can head over to our website, which is wnbpodcast.com, if you would like to learn more about Lucian Khan and find all of the links to all of his games, which are frankly pretty rad. Thank you again for all of your support so far, and please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. So that way you get our episodes as soon as they come out each Wednesday and so that other listeners can see that we're out there. Thank you again, and I'm really excited about next week's episode.